Ruiz Teixeira is a foremost American political intellectual. He's a gadfly, angrily buzzing about the heads of Democratic Party establishment figures in office and in the network of think tanks and such that provide most of the party's thought. Some 20 years ago, Teixeira, along with his co-author John Judas, published The Emerging Democratic Majority, which became a kind of combination Bible and political tour guide for Democrats on how to achieve an enduring political majority. Today, 20 years down the road, he and Judas are more like biblical Jeremiah's, castigating the party for how it went astray. And they have a new book out, Where Have All the Democrats Gone?, which is their new field guide to the Democratic Party. If you are a part of our political life at all, and whether you are a Democratic stalwart or not, you must read this book because of its sweep and challenges. It combines a history of our politics from the time of the Great Depression to the midst of Biden's presidency, along with extended essays on four directions today's Democratic Party has taken, which they think are deeply mistaken. I have already posted the portion of my interview with Teixeira in which we discuss immigration, but today we're going to discuss the direction of the Democratic Party in general. I really don't want to say any more. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Instead, I'll ask Teixeira to make his own presentation. Let's start with an overview of your take in the emerging Democratic majority on the direction the Democratic Party could have taken in the early 2000s, but didn't. Right. Well, um, as, as some people may know, uh, you know, not only do John Judas and I have a new book out, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? We just came out this November. Back in 2002, we put out a book that got around quite a bit called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And in that uh, book, we basically laid out a thesis which argued that given the way the country was changing demographically, ideologically, economically, the terrain was shifting in a way that would favor the Democrats' general approach and general brand, which at that time we labeled progressive centrism. Uh, We looked at the rise of the non-white population. We looked at the rise of professionals, their realignment toward the Democrats. We looked at the changes in the voting patterns among women voters, which was very much moving in Democrats' favor, particularly among highly educated women. And we we talked a lot about the changes that were taking place in the more dynamic metropolitan areas of the country. We called ideopolises, which were also moving in the Democrats' favor. And we suggested that if the Democrats could keep on top of this wave of change and take advantage of it, they could build a potentially dominant majority coalition. Now, one thing we also said in the book, which was widely ignored, uh, was that while the white working class is a declining group in the United States, its share of voters is going down, it's still massive. It's particularly important in a lot of key states, obviously, as everybody knows, in the Midwest. And if Democrats could uh, needed to keep a, a strong minority share of that vote, maybe 40% nationwide, maybe closer to 45 in a lot of these key Midwest states. They could do that. They were in good shape. Conversely, if they didn't do that and there was a lot of further attrition among white working class voters, then, in fact, they would actually be in trouble and the political arithmetic wouldn't work out quite so well. Now, in 2008, when Obama 
won a, a, a thumping victory uh, in his first uh, election campaign. And it looked like all these constituencies and states we talked about were coming online. Um, I think we were, you know, probably unjustifiably, but nevertheless hailed as seers or prophets. Uh, and all of our warnings got pretty much forgotten. Despite the fact, if you actually, Wally, if you actually look at the data from 2008, it's very clear that Obama did relatively well among white working class voters. And that was a, a critical part of his, the, the size of his victory. But people didn't pay much attention to that. Then in 2010, the roof falls in, right? Uh, the Democrats suddenly are on the back foot. They lose 63 House seats. And if you look at the data from that election, it's very clear that well, a lot of what drives this is the defection of white working class voters from the Democrats in that election, particularly in the Midwest, but all over the place. Now, in 2012, Biden, I mean, Biden, excuse me, Obama does manage to win a second term. Everybody's very happy about that. The Obama coalition showed up again. But importantly, what people ignored was that Obama ran a sort of populist campaign against Romney, the plutocrat, touting the auto bailout and other things. And he actually was successful in clawing back a lot of those white working class voters in the upper Midwest. And that was critical to his victory. He does not win without that shift. But that was, again, universally forgotten, even forgotten by, by some uh, Republicans to some extent, because their Republican autopsy focused exclusively on the issues with Hispanic voters and non-white voters. Um, 2014, the Democrats again have a terrible election. I think they lose nine Senate seats. 2016, nobody needs to tell uh, anybody listening who won that election, and Trump wins that election because of this bailout of white working class voters, particularly in key Rust Belt states, from the Democrats. So what they had been ignoring and not understanding was the critical part of their coalition came back to bite them. And, uh, you know, there we were. Now, all along, John Judas and I are sort of rethinking some of our ideas about the potential of the Democratic Party and what its potential problems might be. And I think we were already thinking about this before 2016, after 2016, obviously it, it, it raises some questions for us. And we start thinking that the way the Democrats are comporting themselves does not seem to be consistent with fixing these problems, which are now uh, appearing to them among the working class. In fact, the way the Trump victory was summed up by most Democrats overwhelmingly is Trump was a racist and a xenophobe Therefore, that is why people voted for him. Therefore, they're all deplorables in Hillary Clinton's immortal phrase. And, you know, what the hell can we do about that? You know, we're the progressive party. We can't, we can't toy with or have any truck with that sort of thing. And <clears throat> ironically, of course, uh, a lot of these votes for Trump, some of whom voted for Obama in the previous two elections, they were people who were living in communities that had been devastated by economic change, by the kind of neoliberalism Democrats had spent 40 years denouncing. And now that voters actually came out uh, and voted for someone who promised to shake things up and break the crockery, all they could think about was, he's a racist, they're racists. So I, I thought this, we thought this was indicative of a cultural shift in the Democratic Party, where they were no longer capable of really understanding where working class voters were coming from. And they did seem to be becoming increasingly preoccupied with a set of issues we discussed in the second part of our book called Cultural Radicalism, which was uh, shaping the priorities and image of the Democratic Party in a way that would make them uh, uncongenial to working class voters. Now, in 2020, 
just to finish up here, this tour of the horizon, what really happens, and again, is not really understood as well by Democrats as it could have been, is non-white working class voters move sharply away from the Democrats, particularly Hispanics in the selection, like by 20 points. Yeah, now, one of the things that startled me in your new book is um, you literally have the sentence, 2020 was a turning point, uh, not in a good way. And it's a rather interesting claim. 2020, Democrats win. Uh, Joe Biden becomes president of the United States. He knocks off uh, an incumbent Republican who looked pretty darn secure before the pandemic hit. Um, but to your perspective, 2020 just had inside of the election real problems going on. Can you walk us into that? Sure. Trump uh, did not do much better among white working class voters. In fact, he did a tiny bit worse in 2020 than he did in 2016. But as I was just alluding to, one thing that absolutely gobsmacked Democrats is after four years of Donald Trump, four years of the, the xenophobe in chief, four years of chaos, and the heels of the pandemic and economic crisis, bizarrely, some of their most loyal constituents voted for him at higher rates than they had before. Again, these non-white working class voters are key, particularly Hispanics. And now that's not supposed to happen. So we thought that was a real signal of something that was going on with the Democrats coalition, that it was fraying. And it was particularly fraying in, uh, you know, in, among working class voters. And that's really what prevented them from having a bigger victory than they did. Remember, uh, um, Biden was supposed to to win, according to the data uh, collected before the election, by far more than he did. And they weren't supposed to lose 12 House seats. Um, this, this, was, this was not supposed to be in the cards. It was supposed to be a wave election. It wasn't a wave election. And it wasn't a wave election primarily because of how working class voters conducted themselves in that election. And since then, I don't think we've seen too many signs of that being repaired, at least in the larger presidential coalitional level, as we see moving into, into 2024. The Democrats did relatively well in 2022 by losing fewer House seats than they thought they would, even though they lost the House, holding the line in the Senate and even gaining a seat. It's a pretty good election for them. Some of these abortion referenda and other elections have been good for them, but these are relatively low turnout affairs. Presidential elections are going to be quite different. And for example, if you look at the Ohio referendum that was recently passed putting abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution, the exit polls showed this was a plus two Biden electorate that showed up in that election. <laughs> However, Ohio as a whole is probably more like minus eight Democratic or plus eight Republican. Um, and in fact, Trump is running far ahead of, of Biden in Ohio at the current time. And I don't probably need, don't need to draw listeners' attention to what they've been hearing about already, quite a lot, I bet, which is how badly Biden is polling at this point overall and in most key swing states. So that coalition that Democrats need to instantiate to actually beat Trump in 2024 seems to be leaking working class voters again in a big way. Now, that's not to say 2024 Biden can't win, but it does suggest he's got quite a challenge. Well, let's take that as uh, a, a, a jump off point to spend a, a bit of time on in greater detail, 2024, you just wrote up uh, a new liberal patriot essay. And by the way, for those folks who are listening, 
if you want a steady stream of some of the most interesting political thinking that's going on in the country, subscribe to the Liberal Patriot. Get it online. Uh, you're going to find a lot of fascinating stuff there. You just posted a piece discussing the polling in depth in two particular states, Michigan and Georgia. And some of the stats there curled my hair. I don't have any hair to curl, but I get you. <laughs> I was waiting for that one. <laughs> what, give, us, give us a taste of what you just, uh, what you just authored. Okay, this was taking off from a couple of uh, CNN polls that just came out, uh, one in Michigan, one in Georgia. Uh, in those polls, uh, uh, Biden is behind by 10 in Michigan, 5 in Georgia. And this is not inconsistent with a bunch of other swing state polls that have been released recently, including New York Times Siena. So uh, digging into the, the internals of the poll, I found that one remarkable thing about, for example, the Michigan data is... Biden is behind Trump, in this poll at least, by 21 points among working class voters writ large, right? Just don't, whoa, whoa, right don't, yeah. let, don't let that zoom by. Biden is behind by 21 points. Right. Among working class voters, non-college voters. My data show that um, uh, in 2020, Biden only lost working class voters in that state uh, by two points. So that's a 19-point swing against them. Uh, if you compare the college-educated uh, vote in the new poll in 2020, there's not much change. So it's all about the working class bailing out from, uh, from Biden. And that's a huge deal, right? Because 70% of eligible voters in, uh, in Michigan in 2020 will be working class, not college-educated. So this is not a good situation for the Biden campaign to be in. And in fact... You know, this is some guesswork, not exactly guesswork, but back of the envelope stuff I did based on the internals of the poll. It suggests that the decline in non-white working class support for Biden, comparing this poll to 2020, is actually greater than the swing as a whole, right? So in other words, if, if working class as a whole is swinging 19 points against Biden, among the non-white working class uh, voters in that state, it, it might be more. It might be in the 20s. So... Something very unfortunate is going on, and that's even leaving turnout problems aside uh, for the Democrats in terms of reaching these working class voters in a state like Michigan. Georgia, it's not quite as severe, but you still see the same pattern. What's driving the move away from Biden toward Trump is, again, working class voters, and again, probably larger among non-white working class voters than among the working class as a whole. So this just underscores the point I was previously alluding to, uh, Wally, that the Democrats' image, their brand, uh, how they sell themselves is just not working with work, the working class as a whole, not just white working class voters, which used to be their problem, but they're increasingly uh, losing support among what should have been their most loyal constituency, non-white working class voters. And that really undercuts their coalition because a lot more working class voters than college educated voters. Um, and if the Republicans become, in a sense, the party of America's working class, at least in a nose-counting sense, obviously that puts a ceiling on Democrats' potential level of support. doesn't mean they can't win an election. I mean, Biden may squeak through in, in this coming election, but it, it, it uh, calls their entire political offer into question because Democrats historically have done best when they're the party of 
you know, the ordinary American, the common man and woman, the working, working and middle classes. They're your tribune, right? Um, Democrats are no longer viewed as a tribune of these classes by the classes themselves. So uh, that is a bad thing. Uh, and if Democrats want to sort of recover their mojo, they have to, to think about how they, how they can do that. And our book is not a guidebook for them in any sense. We're really just trying to diagnose the problems and suggest where some of those problems lie. So when Biden is discussed these days, obviously everyone is uh, in a panic about the possibility of a loss to Trump because all the polling is, is showing that. So your observations about the polling are, are far from unique in that sense. Um, what's different is your focus on the working class and how remarkably different the working class uh, electorate is behaving than the college-educated class. But you also go much further in your new book into what you see as major problems that have emerged because of the Democratic Party as a whole and the message it has been sending to Americans. So most of the discussion about Joe Biden's problems these days focus on Joe Biden. He's, he's old, he's this, he's that. Um, he has problems with inflation, which are massive. And if ever there was a working class issue, why the heck wouldn't inflation be a working class issue? That's right. They can't afford to pay the higher prices the way some of the rest of us can. Ooh have higher incomes and whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it, it's um, I mean, it, it is striking, Wally, I think how underestimated this was by a lot of Democrats as it was going on. Oh, it's transient. It's going to go away and everything will be groovy. Trust us. I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, and then on top of that, the way the, um, the, the sort of expert commentator groups were mystified by the fact that when inflation goes down, so it, it hits 8% inflation a year, it goes down to 7 it goes down to 6 and they expect that the electorate's going to be saying, this is great, inflation is going down. And they're mystified by the fact that folks don't seem to give a darn about that because all they're focused on is what what I see every week when I go to the grocery store, which I, I will do after this interview, <laughs> and I compare bread prices, milk prices, egg prices with what they were a year ago. They're a lot more, and they're not going down. So uh, for ordinary working folks, inflation didn't go away. It's permanent. It happened. Right. Um, so... Yeah, no, people, um, I mean, one thing that I, I think was, uh, had an effect on this sort of lack of understanding is we haven't had a period of high inflation since the 70s, right? So people don't have much experience with it. They've forgotten how huge an issue this can be and how it can lead to, to discontent and how it can ultimately, it really did hurt the Democrats quite a bit as the party of government, as the party of spending and so on. So, but I think another thing that's important, uh, kind of interesting here to, to highlight, Wally, is the kind of bubbled up nature of a lot of people in and around the Democratic Party who sort of tend to define its brand. Because not only are they out to lunch on the inflation issue, they're out to lunch on a lot of other things too. And we talk about them in that second part of our book about race, about immigration, about gender, about climate change. There's a whole cluster of attitudes that 
correspond to how the professional and college-educated elites who dominate the Democratic Party and its shadow party, which we talk about in the group, that in the book, that penumbra of activist groups and nonprofits and foundations and academia, the infrastructure of the party itself, these people tend to believe in a set of things about those kinds of issues that are divorced from the way ordinary working and middle class people think about the world. But they're determined to push these priorities, and these priorities are in fact very important to them. And if, in fact, this does not uh, comport with the way these working and middle class people feel about the world, well, that's their problem, right? <laughs> They're not with the program. They're not on the right side of history. Uh, these are moral questions. We, we have to take a stand on all of them and devil take the hindmost. And if people don't like us, well, that's just because they're racist, transphobes, xenophobes, um, what have you. So I think that is a huge problem for the Democrats, that they're bubbled up in so many different ways, the people who really run the party and define its image. And Joe Biden by himself, normie guy that he may be, it does not have the power to redefine uh, the party in the way that it probably needs to be redefined. That concludes the second part of my interview with Teixeira. Previously, we discussed the issue of immigration. You can check out that conversation in a prior episode. 